Hey everybody, just a very quick note before we begin this episode. I know there's been a little bit of a gap between last episode and this one. All of us have been affected by this global pandemic that we're enduring right now, and us three hosts have all had our schedules, jobs, and lives interrupted in different ways and to varying degrees. We apologize for the delay, but we are very hopeful that this episode can help you to explore a really interesting part of the world from wherever you happen to be right now. Stay safe and we'll have plenty more episodes for you very soon. I am willing to wager 20,000 pounds that I will make a tour of the world in 80 days or less. Do you accept? Don't accept, I accept. The train leaves for Dover this evening. Good evening, gentlemen. Hello everyone and welcome to 80 Days an Exploration Podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by three history and geography nerds in an internet power balloon. This podcast is dedicated to discussing little-known countries, territories, settlements, and cities from around the world. My name is Luke Kelly. I'm broadcasting from Wexford, Ireland, and joining me are... Mark Boyle in Surrey in the UK. And Joe Byrne in Galway, Ireland. And today we'll be talking about the Republic of Vanuatu. Vanuatu is a Pacific Island country located in the South Pacific Ocean around 1700 kilometers or 1000 miles east of Northern Australia and 540 kilometers or 340 miles northeast of New Caledonia. First inhabited by Melanesian people around 3000 years ago, parts of the archipelago were settled by British and French colonists in the 1800s and in 1906 France and the United Kingdom agreed to administer the islands jointly in a unique form of government known as the British-French Condominium. Mm. Vanuatu gained its independence in July 1980 and is today home to around 270,000 people. Only around 65 of the archipelago's 82 islands are inhabited, and although the country is spread across 12,200 square kilometers or 4,700 square miles, its land service is limited to around 4,700 square kilometers or around 1,800 miles, a similar size to the Falkland Islands or our old friend the Gambia just spread out over over the ocean yes indeed the indigenous population called ni vanuatu is overwhelmingly melanesian and the main language is a pidgin creole known as bislama though english and french are both widely spoken as are up to 113 indigenous languages according to a new york times magazine profile a meaningful national identity has been constructed from a common appreciation of ceremonial pig tusk bracelets and the taking of kava, a very mild narcotic root that looks like primordial pea soup and tastes like a fine astringent dirt. Sounds tasty. Straddling the seismic strip known as the Ring of Fire, volcanic eruptions, earthquakes and tsunamis have all been relatively commonplace over recent decades, earning Vanuatu the unfortunate distinction of being the world's most dangerous place in terms of natural disasters. Dear, dear. Mmm. <laughs> Looking forward to modern day then. Indeed. Speaking of which, we have a guest on this episode, which is uh, Professor Lamont Lindstrom, who is chairperson of the anthropology department at the uh, University of Tulsa and an expert on Vanuatu. So we want to thank him for joining us. And uh, if you hear any voice that is not one of the three of us regular hosts, that will be Professor Lindstrom. And as ever, uh, the full a uh, conversation that he and Joe had will be available on our Patreon page for uh, Patreon backers. Uh, Mark, do you want to tell us something that you're looking forward to talking about this episode? 
Um, sure. We we often talk about the how convenient it is that ancient civilizations don't write things down in terms of our research, but um, mm-hmm. I'm I'm gonna find uh, a really good example of uh, inconvenience around uh, explorers not writing things down and making the same exact blunder twice, albeit decades if not hundreds of years apart. Cool. Oh, that sounds interesting. Yeah. Uh, Joe, what about you? Uh, I'm looking forward to us learning a bit about what a, a mysterious messianic um, American serviceman from World War Two and Prince Philip have in common in the eyes of some Nivanuatu, uh, at least in the late 20th century for a while. I'm pretty sure I know who you're talking about, but yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing about that. Um, the thing that I'm looking forward to is... Uh, well, I, I said in the intro that this is one of the most dangerous places in the world in terms of natural disasters. Uh, it's also famous for an extremely dangerous sport, uh, which we'll talk about probably towards the end of this episode, uh, which is the forerunner to bungee jumping. Oh, right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, which should be really interesting. It's and is terrifying to watch on YouTube. Uh, if you will, I may have to check out some yes, videos. Yes, you will. Uh, I'll probably include one in towards the tail end of this episode. But um, yeah, let's uh, let's start out with early history of Vanuatu. Joe, how about you kick us off? Okay, so I suppose a key thing to to remember about Vanuatu is how how very remote it is from like everywhere else mm. uh, in the world. Or at least everywhere that people would have been coming from on their way out into the Pacific Ocean. So it's nearly 1,800 kilometers east of Australia. Yeah. Uh, 800 kilometers west of, of um, Fiji. And about 2,000 miles of ocean away from sort of Solomon Islands, Papua New Guinea and all, all that sort of territory. And w- one one tip I'd like to give people, if you like me enjoy quizzes and games where you have to name all the countries in the world... Uh, Vanuatu is shaped very much like a V mm. so it's an easy mnemonic if you're oh. struggling with your Pacific Island countries and you also have a V shape on um, the flag right I mean why wouldn't mm-hmm. you so we've talked before about the the um, idea of the Polynesian expansion across the, the Pacific you know and how, how people got the Easter Island and Hawaii and um, did fantastic feats of, of sailing um, before that people moved out of Taiwan, Aboriginal Taiwanese people moved through the Philippines and down into the various islands of Oceania in a number of waves. And that basically comes up every time you come to this part of the world. But of course, this expansion was, was held up for literally tens of thousands of years before what's called remote Oceania started to be colonised. So people moved down into what is now Papua New Guinea, and then live their lives, get on with their lives, with their culture, and stop. And expansion stopped until some brave people, about three thousand years ago, set off in uh, in presumably canoes, outrigger canoes, and uh, made it to these remote islands of, of of what is now Vanuatu. These people were probably Austronesian speaking, so speaking that family of languages that spreads all across uh, Polynesia, Melanesia, Micronesia, and even as far as Madagascar. Um, so quite a broadly spread... I expected uh, a fourth Nisha there, if I'm honest, Joe. <laughs> Slight disappointment. Madagnesia. Yeah, Madagnesia. Um, a 2004 dig at Tioma, which is near Port, Port Via on Efate Island, so that's a, one of the main islands of Van, Vanuatu, um, 
unearthed a series of 36 skeletons, skeletal remains, I suppose, at this stage, um, from about 3,000 years ago. Uh, and they had the notable practice of removing skulls for burial elsewhere and replacement with cone shell rings, which suggests some kind of religious or cultural practice that is lost to us in its meaning, but is clearly deliberate. Um, and there's also evidence of chickens, taro and yams being brought here for cultivation and large amounts of shellfish into diet. And... Um, DNA analysis suggests that these people are quite closely related to the Taiwanese and early Philippine settlers uh, and a separate group to the modern population. And they would have been part of what's called the Lapita complex, the Lapita archaeological complex, which is this set of um, of cultural practices that have been found in the archaeological record, specifically kind of pottery with these small tooth-shaped marks in them, which uh, are found from Taiwan all the way into parts of Polynesia. And so this is clearly some technology that was spreading with this group of people. We have come across the Lapita culture before. I think they come up in New Caledonia, if I remember correctly the name. That sounds familiar, yeah. Is from New Caledonia. Edit that out if that's not true. (laughs) Um, No, I'm definitely leaving it now, Joe. That's definitely staying in no matter what. (laughs) Um, so I came across some very interesting recent research into an emerging field about like, ancient DNA. So leading this seems to be David Reich from Harvard Medical School and many, many, many co-workers, all of his papers have dozens of people on them. And basically what this big study finds is that there was a big population turnover. So these first Austronesian speaking Lapita people probably arrived around 3000 years ago. And by about 2300 years ago, they were all but replaced by a new influx of people with uh, origins in uh, with Papuan origins. So coming out of kind of Papua New Guinea and that area. Is, is there any idea like or theory as to why they got replaced? Was it like vast numbers coming in or new technologies or was it anything like that? Presumably a bit of everything and further expansion. I mean, there were probably only a handful of people oh. starting out this, this new colony and then... Oh, I guess someone else decides to expand because for whatever reasons they have and they may have more of it. Yeah, so this is all archaeology. There's literally no way of knowing the events, uh, just what DNA evidence is left behind. And basically these first remote Oceanians were all but replaced and are not really, to a great extent, ancestors of modern Nivanuatu. They arrived around 1300 BC. And then there was a really cool thing where there's a separate Papuan group went on to become Polynesians, bypassing Vanuatu on the way. But some of that DNA has made its way back into uh, Vanuatu through later Polynesian westward migration Hmm. on some of the outlying islands. So these people who all originated in Papua at some point have recombined in, in Vanuatu in a very roundabout way you kind of look like us but not exactly (laughs) so as as mark said people didn't really write stuff down so we rely a lot on oral history and legends for um what happened and i couldn't really come upon a lot we do know that the 11th to 15th centuries ad so we're skipping forward just a few millennia uh the as I say, Polynesians arrived from the east in canoes, probably 50-man-sized canoes. Wow. Big. 
imagine if you saw Moana, you might have seen that illustrated in a beautiful song mm. uh, about Polynesian seafaring. Um, and there's oral legends that kind of back that idea up. Um, and there's enough to know that like in early Nivanuatu culture, pigs were wealth. So in Ireland, it was cows were wealth. Here, pigs uh, were the most important. I remember reading um, a thing about um, kind of chiefs killing the most pigs, that that was a way that some cultures chose the chief. I didn't realize that that was a wealth-based thing. That makes sense. I guess it will be a display um, of wealth to be able to kill more pigs than the next guy. Hmm. Yeah, okay. There was also warfare between villages was regular because, of course, it was. That's what humans do. So uh, cynical. Particularly unique there. <laughs> cynical, Joe. And um, just to get our, our, our cannibalism tick oh, yes. on our checklist of things, there was, there seems to have been ceremonial eating of animal, enemy chiefs was a thing, or enemy kind of high status figures. So that would be a way to put your enemies in their place by eating their leaders. Sure. Um, I mean, it, it is a power play. Uh, I'll put you in your place, my colon. <laughs> um, uh, yam agriculture was vital and the months of the year were named after various yams so that's that's almost like a Turkmenbashi cool. level of like uh, 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 agricultural crop-fixation yeah. and then the, the final kind of concrete kind of story I want to tell you about is a, a 16th century chieftain called Roy Mata who comes up everywhere you look for kind of early history of Vanuatu or prehistory of Vanuatu um, so he's got a lot of stories about him. The UNESCO describe him as the last paramount chief of central Vanuatu. Okay. So in and around Efate, which am I pronouncing that right? No, <laughs> I, I know definitively, you, Joe. Joe, and you're not. Yeah. You're making a dog's dinner of it. Mm-hmm. He was apparently of incredible size, which is nice to know. And he brought many tribes together under his rule. I was um, waiting for the, the inevitable Mark joke there, but it didn't come. So well, no, no. I was I was, I was honestly thinking like if if a bunch of of Polynesian islanders think somebody is of enormous size, can you imagine <laughs> the size of this guy? They're 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 not slight people generally. They're 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 quite That's large. True. Yep. Well, this guy was a a giant, at least in legend. Um. A key tool of his his bringing people together was the Natamwate peace feasts, uh, where arms were set aside for feasting and kava drinking. So this is that bitter, mild narcotic. The word kava literally means bitter. Just kind All of right. the word turns up in 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 I think in Maori it's kawa and in Hawaii it's ava. So this is kind of linguistical connectivity. Pretty similar, yeah. Did you look into Joe like what kind of a effect? Yeah, kava has upon the drinker. I did not. Okay. Mild near narcotic is as far okay. as I know. Um, <laughs> and Joe was out at that point. Later. I'm pretty sure in our um, in our Uruguay episode, weren't you drinking mate, uh, Mark? If I remember correctly. Uh, yeah, I, I I had a supply of mate mate around the time. Uh, okay. This is just caffeine, but it's just really really caffeinated and makes you very jittery and panicky. Okay, you're not used none to of it. us. None of us have gone the extra mile and, and uh, managed to get our hands on any kava for this session, but... Uh, this is very, yeah. very topical, uh, not yeah. to do the bike. But I think Prince Harry drank a bunch of kava when he was out uh, visiting, might have been Vanuatu or elsewhere. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I, and I think it was mildly controversial at the time. Speak for yourself, Luke. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Hmm. Bitter and mildly narcotic. <laughs> nice. Mm. 
Um, uh, maybe Joe, our, our guest, has sampled Kaba at some point? Yeah, well, this is Lamont Lindstrom, who I talked to a bit about Vanuatu, and uh, here's what he had to say about this substance. Kaba is a traditional drug substance, which is traditionally con- consumed throughout most of Polynesia, um, Vanuatu, um, a few places in Papua New Guinea, and a couple of places up in Micronesia. I, I work with a, a botanist named Vincent Lebeau, who has good evidence that the plant was first domesticated about 2,500, 3,000 years ago in northern Vanuatu and then spread from there. It's a member of the pepper family. It's a piper, piper methysticum. can grow seven, eight, nine feet tall when it's old. It's a bush, basically. And um, the roots or the corm have uh, active chemical ingredients called cavalactones. Chemists are still trying to figure out exactly how they might work on the human body. All right. But essentially, it's an emotional leveler. So if you drink a cup or a shell of kava, you get a good 20 or 30 minutes of just feeling peaceful and happy and calm. Okay. It's a very important religious plant um, throughout the Pacific, and that one way in which humans like to contact our spirits, whether it's God or ancestral spirits or whatever, mm-hmm. is to alter our consciousness. So you find um, drug subst- substances not uncommonly used in many religious traditions. And in you know the pre-Christian Pacific, people would drink kava, and it's and um, opened up a a door or window for um, hearing or communicating with uh, spiritual voices. Usually, they're dead ancestral spirit voices. Okay. It's not hallucinogenic, but it does um, alter one's emotions, and it can be a muscle relaxant as well. So if you get a really strong dose of it, um, you're, you find it hard to walk and your eyes might cross, but that's rare. Usually it just give you a, gives you a peaceful feeling. And I don't know what the, uh, the law is where people might be living, but if you check it out on, you know, online, uh, uh, you certainly can buy powdered, uh, dried, dried kava all over mm-hmm. the place. And in the U.S., um, over the last decade, I guess, there are at least a, probably close to 200 kava bars that you can visit. Uh, of course, people, Americans are using the substance very differently than, you know, Pacific Islanders might use it. But I was just in Hilo, Hawaii, last week, and they've got a nice little kava bar. And um, I've visited many around around the USA. So, um, legend had it that it was at one such peace feast that Roy Mata, the, the massive chieftain, um, became violently ill. Oh. The Sunshine Coast Daily has an article mentioning that he was poisoned by his brother, uh, where Lonely Planet claims he was shot in the neck with a poisoned arrow. These are rigorous scholarly Those sources. Very different uh, methods of demise, I would say. Both, both by his brother, though. Oh, okay, the brother, okay. Um, who presumably wanted to become... You know, the next chieftain, but wasn't wasn't massive enough or hadn't killed right. any pigs. And he died in a cave on Lelepa Island, which was near his headquarters. He was then buried on Eretoka, which is called Hat Island, because it looks like a Very hat. Good. Um, it's got a, a w- wide brim and then a, a hill. And the burial mound has him and 25 of his retinue, possibly in a kind of ceremonial killing. I was going to say, was that voluntary? Apparently not. Uh, this was discovered in, in 1967 by Jose Garinger, a French archaeologist. And it, it was on a different island, as I say, to to the, the chief's main village of Mangas, which was 
presumably was a, a thing. People were quite scared of his spirit and wanted him kind of to be peacefully somewhere else. His sizable uh, spirit. Air, Sorry we shot you in the neck. Was, uh, <laughs> please don't come back and haunt us. <laughs> the, the whole area is protected by a tapu um, for centuries. So pretty much no one set foot in this island for a long time out of respect oh, wow. or fear or... or um, you know, taboo means I think like sacred land or holy land or cursed land or forbidden land, depending how you translate it. But the idea is that it's it's been designated as separate, um, and that protected the the archaeological site until later governments brought in regulations to protect it for more urbane reasons. But yeah, so. The state of play when Westerners turned up was a little bit mysterious, but it was probably just lots of villages with chiefs getting on with their lives like people do on lovely islands with occasional tsunamis and earthquakes, as we discussed. And people so getting shot in the neck and getting their heads removed before before or possibly after they've been killed. <laughs> I'm not yeah. sure. Oh, no, the heads were removed after. Oh, OK. They rotted, I think. And then That's replaced better. with seashells. Yeah. OK. <laughs> What can we put on that's better than a head? Seashells? Mm. Uh, and then Europeans come along to, to mess it all up. <laughs> Do you want to tell us how that happened, Mark? Yeah, so, um, okay. Uh, kicking off, we need to talk about a guy called Pedro Fernandez de Quiros. And so I was just looking. I think we encountered him not too long ago. I think he was mentioned in the context of Pitcairn. Uh, if you recall... Uh, Europe essentially mi- misplaced the Pitcairn Islands, and he was the guy who found it, or refound it, in fact, in uh, around 1606. And it was on that voyage that he went on to be the first European to discover what would be called the New Hebrides for quite a long time. At one point, we're called, I think, the the Cyclades or the Cyclades, and would eventually be called Vanuatu. What made him think? These volcanic islands were anything like the Hebrides. Oh well, no, that, that was that was later on. I think that was Cook who called them the Hebrides. Okay, uh, we'll we'll, we'll take it up with Cook when we get to him. But um, he was keen to find Australia or uh, Australia Nondum, sorry, Terra Australis Terra Nondum Australis. Cognita, uh, yeah. which was, as we all know, the assumed kind of southern hemisphere counterweight. To Europe slash North America slash Asia, stop the world falling over. Asia. Yeah, I think, exactly. yeah, it would stop the Earth falling spinning onto one out side. of control. Or... Yep, you know. And if they didn't find it, then there was a great risk. You know, it's you know these are big brains we're dealing with here, guys. <laughs> big old brains. <laughs> anyway, uh, the other thing probably to note about Quiros is that uh, he was uh, Portuguese, but in charge of a, a Spanish expedition, and that, as you might expect for the time very keen on Christianity and in the kind of slightly old school way of you know hey let's burn you let's cut lumps out of you okay it's cool bye so uh, his expedition set out in 1603 involved between 250 to 300 people uh, including six Franciscan friars uh, Jesus etc and they had provisions for a year seeds animals for settlement and all that stuff but as I mentioned he's Portuguese crew Spanish not great vibes on the trip. Uh, I mean, Magellan was Portuguese and his crew were Spanish, or he was he was sailing for the Spanish, and Columbus was Italian, sailing for the Spanish. Italian, so yeah. It I, I don't know. It it was a standard enough thing I mean, for the it's time. Like Premiership but, football, really, isn't it? Uh, yeah, sure. 
Uh, right. <laughs> anyway, so uh, to to highlight the uh, Jesus loving nature of of the trip, they had two ships. The first was called the San Pedro y San Pablo, and the other ship was called the San Pedro. Uh, so we've got the, that, the Saint Peter and Saint Paul and Saint Peter. Yeah, I know, and they have a, a little boat as well, which I think is uh, is called something else. Fairly religious, I'm sure. I think it might have been called the Three Kings or something like that. Um, so I don't really have a lot of interesting info on the voyage, apart from that they re-found Pitcairn Islands. Um, but in 1606, kind of in the summer, they started to happen uh, on the Banks and Torres uh, areas of Vanuatu. And this is around where they first contacted people on the island of, I'm going to mispronounce this, it's G-A-U-A, Gawa, I think, the island of Gawa. Sure. Um, a man from the shore was observing them as they came close and he jumped into their launch. Uh, oh, nice. <laughs> Dicey guy. Oh, no. Um, so they told him they wanted to convert him. He had no idea what they were talking about because he's from Vanuatu. Uh, so they then captured him along with another local. Um, this is, there's a lot of really mixed messages here. So they capture him. Mm, not so good. They put him in stocks on the ship. Um, but then they feed him a big Spanish dinner, including lots of wine. Nice. Then they shave off his hair. Not so good, except for a mm. tuft on the side. Mm. But then they dress him up in silks and feathered plumes. I mean, better. Um, and then they left him go back to the shore. And everyone on the shore was like, you look insane. This is really cool. Uh, <laughs> I would and... imagine everybody on the shore would be like, uh, we're never believing this story whatsoever. Yeah, exactly. Until that guy came uh, back this, in the this, this, this sounds like an alien abduction, basically. Yeah, it, it, it basically, basically yeah. is at they this point in time. They took me to space. Time. They showed me all of their, their wonderful technology. They gave me an 80s yeah. do. did other things. Uh, anyway, so yeah. everyone was really excited about all this crazy stuff he was wearing. Uh, and they, they specifically comment that uh, they loved us so much, a lady let us hold her baby. And they seemed already really cool about that and really excited. Uh, they, were, they were given, <laughs> I don't know... <laughs> They were given gifts, uh, but before they left, the neighboring tribe apparently was maybe jealous, so started attacking them, so they started shooting back at them. Again, it's really mixed messages all over the place. It's, it's, it's hard to say that this was a terrible meeting or a particularly good one. On the coast of Santo, they saw many tawny men, very tall, with bows in their hands. These men also tried to entice them ashore, first by throwing feathers into the sea, and then by sending boys as envoys swimming out to the ships. When the sailing okay. ships passed them by, this is, this they started Santo firing Spirito, their arrows. Is it? Uh, yes, exactly. Um, okay. Finally, on the 1st of May, 1606, they found a safe anchorage in a large and deep bay on the north of Espiritu de Santo. Uh, and here's a direct quote. When a party landed in the launch the next morning, Hieros desire to establish peace and friendship based on the good work we intend to do for them. We're quickly dashed when a soldier killed a Santo man, cut off his head and foot, and hung the severed parts in a tree. So does no. seem like a mistake? Ooh, it's it's not. I think he was on his own, and he thought this like, would be a good thing. That's not a kind of do. a. I, I was overwhelmed. They were attacking me. I shot someone. That's. I shot someone. Then I dismembered them. Yes. And then hung their bits in a tree. tree. Yeah. Yep. It, it's a bit psychotic. Uh, I I don't think um, Kieros was altogether happy with that. So uh, Kieros then faffs around for a couple of weeks. Uh, claims the whole area for Spain and the Catholic Church. Uh, which is, you know, standard basic explorership. But named it in Portuguese. Espiritu uh, Santo, I guess so, yeah. Um, Interesting. They set up a settlement called New Jerusalem, 
uh, and started by building a church and setting up a local government, farming, and then commenced robbing everything from their neighbours that wasn't nailed down. Uh, among the things they robbed were three boys to save their souls. Uh, this led to crew disputes, uh, with apparently one sailor saying, 30 pigs would be better eating than three boys. And I don't know what that means. That's both true and... It sounds cannibalistic or eaty, let's, le- let's eat them. I, I don't really know what that means, but it doesn't sound great. I hope he's being literal. <laughs> I mean, yes. Be, it I mean, it's joke. true. Could be. But it shouldn't be a comparison. No. <laughs> you know? No. Uh, three full-grown men, for instance, would have been much better eating. These these children we've imprisoned, it's a bad start. From there on, you're on a loser, I think. Um, so, Kiaros decided to head away. So, in preparation, he started doing lots of extra fishing in order to collect fish provisions for the trip. Punchline! The fish were all poisonous! And uh, everyone had terrible diarrhea and sickness. And then when he tried to leave, the weather drove him back. So there's a bit of uncertainty here as to whether people started to lose faith in him and the trip split into two separate groups or whether it was the weather that kind of broke them up. Unofficially, I think there might have been a bit, light, light, bit of light mutiny on this trip. And uh, Kieros went in one way and his second in command, Torres, took the, uh, the uh, other boat. And uh, Kieros went back to Spain via Mexico. Wait, 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 hang on, let, me, let me guess, did Torres go to... The Taurus Islands, uh, and also the Taurus Strait. The Taurus Strait. He 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 basically yeah. found the Taurus Strait, but didn't find Australia, as far as I know. He he like oh. Australia was right over the horizon, but he didn't find it, as far as I know. Because Taurus Strait Islanders are kind of a distinct group of Aboriginal Australians, right? They're they're not related to oh. mainland Aboriginal Australians, but they they often get lumped together in in sort of terms of, you know. The white Australians have done a bad thing that offends Aboriginal Australians and Torres Island, Torres Strait Islanders, but but they, um, yeah, I, I think they're a separate group altogether. All right, interesting. I, I had no idea. Sea. Um, so that was sixteen oh six. Things get a bit quiet for a while uh, until a uh, hundred and sixty something years later. Um, Oh. Yeah, between 1766 and 1769, Louis Antoine de Bougainville became the 14th man and the first Frenchman to circumnavigate the earth. He's uh, the namesake of that part of Papua New Guinea that got independence. Oh, yes. He is indeed. Independence he is indeed. Um, so I haven't seen any account that showed him actually spending time there, but he did go to uh, Vanuatu and he renamed it the Great Cyclades or Great Cyclades but uh, just to be clear no one else is ever going to call them that so you can kind of forget about that pretty much no. straight away um, and then the last person I'm going to mention is Captain James Cook 80 Days All-Star 80 Days All-Star indeed uh, so in 1774 he was on his second voyage and he got to the new Hebrides uh, after some misunderstandings with natives um they began to shoot arrows. A musket discharged in the air and a four-pounder over their heads sent them all off in the utmost confusion. Those in the cabin leapt out of the windows. Uh, about nine o'clock we landed in the face of about four to five hundred men who were assembled on the shore armed with bows and arrows, clubs and spears. But they made not the least opposition. On the contrary, one man gave his arms to another and met us in the water with a green branch in his hand, which he exchanged for the one I held in my hand. So 
they they met. It didn't go great at at the start, but eventually they kind of made a bit of peaceful contact. And just before departing, Cook remarked, "They have not so much as a name for a dog. Consequently, they can have none. For which reason, we left them a dog and a bitch." Um, feel feel free to bleep that. Um, so they sailed south to another large island, being guided by a great fire we saw upon it. Cook realized it was volcano, strongly implying it was the island of Tana. And the volcano was Mount Yasur. Uh, they stayed about 10 days taking on water. The locals were watching them tensely. Uh, Forrester, who I believe was on the trip and he was one of the uh, the guys running everything down. Forrester recorded that several officers and crew ate a poisonous red fish. So the same damn red fish that took out Kiro's crew. Um, here, here's some great quotes. Uh, Sounds like a bit of a red herring. Oh, nice, nicely done. Um, Several had violent vomiting and purging, great heat in the face and headache. Others felt a benumbing pain in their arms, knees and legs. On the 27th of Mm. July, George Forster noted that some of the poison crew were emaciated to mere shadows and we had not one lieutenant able to do duty due to these dang fish. On the 1st of August, Forster noted he had recently had the ill luck to slip on the deck when it had been washed and though I did not fall, I got, however, a hurt by it. And since that time, I feel a kind of uneasiness in the groin and the bowel oh, no. stands a bit out, but may be shoved back at the least touch. Oh, Do we know what fish this was? What, <laughs> like, what kind of a fish? Um, I, I saw some theories. Um, it's probably the fish that's called... Ukamaka, which is the local word for "don't eat that, you idiot." <laughs> Ooh, I see that. Fish. Oh, um, the a, a hall of pargos, probably red bass or red sea bream. But I think red bass and red sea bream are probably not that poisonous. But I don't know because you know I think I've eat, I've eaten sea bass, I've eaten bream. I don't think they're poisonous. But maybe fish. not red ones. Yeah, maybe maybe it's mm. just the red ones. But anyway, yeah. Uh, if you go to Vanuatu, just be careful about the fish. I guess don't eat the fish. I don't. I don't think I'm familiar with too many fish who are, you know, poisonous to eat. Just I guess puffer, puffer fish. fish maybe, but yeah, that's the only one I've heard of. I think. How about ones that that cause your butthole to stick a bit out, so that you could you have to push it back in? <laughs> is that is that a normal thing? That's why I want to know the name, Mark, so I can put it on my do not eat list. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, by the end of the summer, first of September. Uh, Cook's crew did a lap of Espiritu de Santo and realized that after charting the place, killing a native boy for no reason I could see, and at least three times shooting cannons at the natives to scare them, they had left the best impression possible. Uh, so they drew a line under their Vanuatu adventures and they sidled off to New Caledonia. Uh, yeah. So that- and ag- again, did we get any idea why they were going at the Hebrides? Have they just done the whole New Britain, New Ireland, New Hebrides, New Caledonia? They're just kind of doing a greatest hits of the. I guess the, because the, the Hebrides are, are like an archipelago uh, and this was an archipelago type thing. So, you All know, right. they call it that. that that's, that's my guess. I, I haven't seen a good reason for it, though. So uh, the next encounter that Vanuatu had with Europeans was in 1789 when uh, the island group was called at by rescuers who were seeking Captain Bly and his officers who were sailing the open sea after the mutiny on the bounty and you can see our Pitcairn episode for more on that particular episode after around 1800 uh, whaling ships began to call regularly at Vanuatu 
particularly at uh, Tana Island in the south of the chain. Oh, yeah. Oh, we're going to yep. visit there again. Hmm. During this period, traders and missionaries, chiefly uh, Presbyterians, uh, as, as far as I could tell, okay. uh, also began to arrive on Tana Island. And the Tanaese uh, were not particularly keen on being converted. Um, so, uh, yeah, the missionaries would eventually make their way all, all over Vanuatu. Um, but there is a significantly smaller population of uh, Christians on uh, Tana Island than there are in the rest of Vanuatu, as far as, as, far as I could tell anyway. And also around this time, around 1825, a guy called Peter Dillon uh, discovers sandalwood uh, on the island of Aromango. And he sounds uh, that, Irish. Yeah, well, but possibly. I didn't actually look up where he's from. Just, just for reference, Peter Dillon was born in Martinique, son of an Irish immigrant, and joined the Royal Navy. So, oh, great! You know, the name's Irish. He's French. Perfect. But yeah, that that began a crucial period of change for the islands. Um, because sandalwood was very highly prized at the time, uh, particularly in China. Was was there not sandalwood on? Was it New Caledonia as well? I feel I like that was probably, I think that, that probably was yeah. period as well. Yeah, there's going to be a few parallels in this section between here and uh, New Caledonia. One of them is uh, is uh, blackbirding, which you'll remember very very well, Mark. Oh, um, no. Yeah. So yeah, Peter Dillon couldn't entice the locals to help him to harvest the sandalwood. Uh, but his reports upon leaving Vanuatu of sandalwood groves on Aramango attracted uh, a great deal of traders, uh, many of whom had very, uh, much much fewer scruples than him in forcing them to help them harvest the trees. In 1830, a Hawaiian king, which I thought was unusual, I, I assume these people will be coming from Europe, but... Uh, yeah, Hawaiian king sent a contingent of 479 troops Whoa. to Emerango to seize control of the island and the sandalwood. So that's, that's how cool. how much of a commodity this this was at the time, yeah. Um, and there, funnily enough, uh, right around the same time, they met other contingents of Polynesian soldiers from Tonga and from Fiji. Wow. Uh, we're like sort of, I, just, I could just picture them on the beach in like a sort of Mexican standoff sort of situation like, uh, this is our sandalwood. Nope, it's our sandalwood. Um, and basically but, but what this is on. kind of the issue with, with the, the, the narrative we grew up with in the West of like that the people in other places were just you know good little village people not causing any trouble yeah or that I they're mean, just savages who, who have no intelligence whatsoever yeah, yeah. People, yeah. Are, people are people and so if you're a Fijian chieftain and you hear there's money to be made yeah, or you're equivalent you're to money. Likely to go and hunt after it as some lad from England. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, the um, those groups uh, ended up in hostilities, uh, both as far as I can tell, with each other, and then also with the uh, Amerangans. And uh, fever began to set in as well because they were obviously in unfamiliar territory. Um, and in the end, uh, just a handful of Hawaiians returned to oh Hawaii in disgrace having failed to take control of, of the island. So, um, yeah, clearly these, uh, these Amerangans are, you know, know what's up and they're, they're seem seemingly able to defend themselves under sandalwood. You, um, using, using the medium of a disease. Yes. <laughs> yeah. you know, exactly. <laughs> well, you know, germ um, warfare essentially. Yeah. So in 1839, uh, the first two British missionaries to be dispatched from the London Missionary Society were, here we go, tick, tick, 
quickly killed and eaten after Whoa. their arrival in Marengo, oh, right. becoming okay. the first Christian missionaries to be killed in the South Pacific, which I thought was pretty oh, interesting. Um, an honor. Yeah, Lucky it's them. believed that they were killed uh, because they disrespected uh, some kind of ceremony or ritual that was happening at the time when they landed. Um, but they would not be the only missionaries to die on Amaranko. <laughs> this this island would later go on to become known as Martyr's Isle, uh, partly because <laughs> of a publication back in Britain. Um, but, I mean, I think it's, it's a thing that we've seen previously with Christian missionaries where, you know, they're if they're dumb. rebuffed, all right. They <laughs> just double down. Oh yeah. Just like, okay. Yeah. We're just going to send even more people. Um scarlet fever you say. Where do I sign up? Well, I think yeah. like I mean, I think the rationale is often like th- these these guys have resisted. They really need saving then. If they only resisted a bit, they'd need a bit of saving, but they resisted really hard, so they really really need yes. to be saved. It doesn't really make any sense, but that, that seems to be the way they go. So a, few, a handful of Canadian missionaries were killed there in 1861 bringing the total of uh, dead missionaries to six. And I, I believe after that point, then the, the term Martyr's Isle began to become uh, popular. And that only encouraged other missionaries to attempt to uh, convert the natives okay. there. Um, so one missionary, a guy called Reverend James A. Gordon, arrived and preached to the Amerangans that the Christian God had sent the 1861 measles epidemic in revenge for the killing of the missionaries. What do you guys imagine happened to him? <laughs> did he get the measles, then died? Uh, no, he did not, but he did die. Yeah, <laughs> he okay. definitely did die. In the middle of the 1840s, uh, the price of sandalwood declined, discouraging settlers, but then rose again at the end of that decade, bringing more sandalwood traders throughout the uh, 1850s. So the Amerangans throughout the uh, 1850s and 1860s, I guess, had to deal with European settlers and also very annoying missionaries. <laughs> Which was not great. And then uh, the process of blackbirding, which we've yeah. spoken about before, uh, begins across Vanuatu. Blackbirding, if you haven't heard our New Caledonia episode, which you should. And I mean, we, we, we probably won't go into a lot of detail about it here because we've already covered this topic uh, from from a, a different perspective. But um, blackbirding, as, as Mark spoke about in our New Caledonia episode, is a process by which adult males were taken as indentured slaves and forced to work on plantations, mostly in Australia, but also in uh, in Fiji and, and in other places around the Pacific. And at its height, it's estimated that over half of the adult male population from the islands around Vanuatu was working abroad. Now, they're not slaves, as we, again, we discussed previously. Uh, they were paid, but they were tricked for the most part or coerced to, into yeah. leaving uh, without any idea as to exactly where they were supposed to be going and when they would get back and... Then when they were uh, when they were working on these plantations, the 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 conditions were were yeah. slave like, and um, yeah, I, they were I think, paid a pittance. And, and I think it's important to kind of flag that that conditions point because I think yeah, I mean we we've talked about measles, we've talked about kind of diseases and stuff. I I guess because the distances between them were so great, often they were not used to the germs that the people had. So that that was definitely something we saw in previous examples of blackbirding that like disease became rife really dramatically and quickly because the immune systems they had were just not not equipped to deal with the you know panoply of disease that uh, they would encounter when kind of moved to foreign lands it just it did not go well for people yeah so around uh, according to the figures i have here around sixty thousand pacific islanders in total were uh blackbirded to mostly to australia in the late 1800s 
uh, primarily to work in sugarcane plantations. And yeah, as you mentioned, Mark, around 30% of arrivals died in the plantations due to a combination of exposure to European diseases, but also uh, due to malnutrition and mistreatment. And most of those were buried in mass unmarked graves. Oh my God. Many of which are still being discovered today. Uh, and then to, you know, rub salt into the wound, between 7,000 and 10,000 of those, the, the ones that survived, uh, were deported back to Melanesia in the in the early 20th century after the in introduction of a white Australia policy. And some laborers actually tried to challenge that and tried to stay in Australia, uh, even sent a petition to King Edward VII, which was signed by up to 3,000 islanders, but uh, most of them were not successful. All right, so we're just going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back after, after this with the uh, British and the French. Hey, listeners, uh, normally this is the spot where we'd insert a plug for our Patreon page, and that is pretty much what this is. But I want to take this particular episode to stress that if you are struggling financially right now, as many people are, please be sure to take care of yourself first. If you are happy to keep funding the show, that's great. But we know that there are people out there that need the money a lot more than we do. So for this episode uh, and this month, we will be sending the proceeds of our Patreon takings, plus a little bit extra from our own pockets to Medicine Sans Frontiers or Doctors Without Borders to help fight COVID-19 around the world. Uh, once again, stay safe out there. And now we'll get back to the show. All right, so Joe, you were going to tell us a little bit about uh, how the British and French uh, came to this agreement in the late 19th century. Uh, do you want to do you want to elaborate on that? Yeah, so we have both the French and the British and, and Australians were British at that time, um, planting various bits of the New Hebrides as they then were, um, with cotton plantations and switching to coffee, bananas, cocoa, and coconut or copra, which is a coconut byproduct. It's very popular. Um, and it's a bit, as a colonial, in the colonial era, this is a bit awkward. You've got two different nationalities, both kind of eking away at this this set of islands with no real authority or protection from their, their mother countries. Um, there were actually about twice as many French as British into the late 19th century. Okay. But the territory wasn't ceded to France and basically... Planters of either nationality wanted their country to come in and take over, but no one seemed to have the appetite for it. Uh, in 1878, they decided that it would be a neutral territory. So like a Switzerland? Or... <laughs> just that, 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 just that ne neither, of the, neither France nor, uh, nor the UK would, would claim it and would annex it. Um, so this is the this is the equivalent of a of a draw essentially like yeah, a tie yeah, like we're exactly. we're we're both going to take parts or or both going to figure out how to manage this place between us right but obviously if you're one of the planters this is creates some awkwardness like for example yeah marriages you know if you were French you needed a civil marriage so and the nearest registrar was all the way in New Caledonia and if you were British you needed a vicar to marry you and the nearest Church of England diocese was in Fiji. So, you know, in just day-to-day -day life, you have kind of administrative nightmares of not having a government that you recognize. Hmm. 
and what uh you know what great power hasn't hasn't thrived with two sets of leadership <laughs> i guess <laughs> um so during this era Modern day Port Villa, which is the, the capital now, was founded as, as Franceville. And in 1887, in a kind of a move towards something a bit more formal, the Anglo French Joint Naval Commission was formed. And that was kind of a, a joint body that would protect the settlers. But it didn't annex the islands and it didn't claim any jurisdiction over internal native affairs. Okay. Sounds great um, if you're an internal native, as it were. Well, at least you're protected from you know chaos outside but yeah that's not to address the chaos within the so you had kind of an army who could go in and defend the settlement from sure sure um the the franceville people were not particularly happy so in 1889 they declared independence interesting it was the first self-governing nation in air quotes that had equal suffrage rights so regardless of sex or race Hmm. everyone in franceville got a vote so even the indigenous people even the those pesky women and, and even women even women wow. was was there any i mean does that relate to any uh elevated position of women in kind of vanuatu I culture so. and I, I don't suspect there were that many women there from a settler point of view like there were only 50 settlers oh, yeah? and 500 natives in this municipality um, okay but the rub of course is that uh only the whites were allowed to hold office so Mm. Ah, everyone had a vote charming um, in 1906 that concept we talked about earlier the, the condominium was finally mm-hmm. established so yeah British French condominium of the New Hebrides it's a very rare form of colonial territory so it's a shared sovereignty but it was not a utopian sort of cooperation between these two countries working in perfect harmony it was sort of based on pragmatism and rivalry and not wanting the other to have the upper hand it's like two people not letting go of a, a tablecloth, you know, and just both pulling on it. And kind of... Joe, spite. You're mm-hmm. describing spite. <laughs> <laughs> That's the concept we're, we're dancing um, around. The British and the French uh, hated each other and neither could bring themselves to give up on something that didn't they really, really want. didn't have any intrinsic value in. And uh, yeah, out of spite, they both held on to Vanuatu yeah. for dear life. Because, you know, the French were worried about what New Caledonia would what would happen to New Caledonia yep. and the British yep. were worried about the French expanding and threatening their Australian and New Zealand sort of situation. So yeah, it was just... Uh, yeah, the French were always likely to invade a, Australia. A stalemate, the cards. Say. <laughs> um, so they literally had two separate governments, two separate systems for I mean, why not? Tell me more. And you basically picked one, you know, if you were French, you had French laws, if you were British, you had British laws. And if you weren't either, then screw you, you don't really mm-hmm. matter. <laughs> Uh, very very yeah, much so. You can't actually. run for office, probably. Uh, each government was a residency appointed by the colonial nation, and then the governments perfectly mirrored each other. So if, if one had a minister for something, the other had a minister for that thing. And if one had two undersecretaries for finance, the other had two undersecretaries for finance. They were all just staring at each other. I'm surprised, um, knowing the animosity between the British and the French, particularly this time, that they didn't like kind of escalate that in order to try to kind of bankrupt the other or something. <laughs> It sounds like something wow. they would do. Yeah. So the only thing that they came together in was this joint court with three judges, one British, one French, and one appointed by the King of Spain. Yep. I um, about that. And that actually continued until 1931 when um, they abolished that third judge. Can you guess why? 
Um, he couldn't speak any English <laughs> or French. Uh, no, much more prosaic. The Spanish monarchy had been abolished. <laughs> ah. Ah. The Republic. Okay. I, I had a quote about that Spanish, uh, the Spanish judge, mm. uh, which which is where I got that from, which was that he could not speak English. He barely understood French, knew no Melanesian, was bewildered by pigeon, was deaf as a post, and he traveled to court on an elderly wheezing mule. Uh, I'm not sure the mule figured into it, but it's worth it wow. for the image, I think. That's great. No, I didn't see that one. Um, and basically, the, the, this court was meant to settle land claims. In reality, it settled 50 land claims in 20 years, so maybe not doing a great job. Efficient. And then there was some yeah. joint government to run, like, the postal system, the public radio, run some censuses, build some roads, you know, lighthouses and ports, that kind of thing. Government stuff. Stuff that you really can't do. Do government of. stuff. Could you imagine having two okay. postmen come to your house every day with different letters? Speaking different languages. The postmen always ring twice and then twice again. And then there was a, a, another court for settling matters of customary law among the majority Melanesian population. So most of the people here were always Melanesian. You know, there were never that many settlers. Um, but there was no education plans for the natives or provisions to protect them from, you know, colonial excesses, for lack of... Why would <laughs> you? I found a 1944 article about the condominium by a guy called Lyndon A. Mander. And he, he sums up the situation thusly. There was no provision for any legislative council, so that'd be no democracy of any kind. The commissioners were to have power jointly to issue and enforce local regulations. The natives of the New Hebrides were not to acquire the status of subjects or citizens or to be under the protection of either of the two powers. But the resident commissions were to have authority over the native chiefs to make regulations binding the tribes. They were to respect native customs where the customs were not, quote, contrary to the maintenance or order of the dictates of humanity. Okay. Um, uh, so your customs are contrary to the dictates it, of humanity. <laughs> Just, yeah, I suppose yeah, cannibalism don't eat people, I guess. Is, yeah, also that's the obligatory like ca- cannibalism mentioned, I guess. Not giving all your land to a white guy is probably in there too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, probably. And basically to travel abroad, Nivanuatu people had to get identity documents signed by both the British and French resident commissioner. So like... Yeah. Convenient. Convenient, yeah. Um, I, I honestly can't understand why more countries are not governed like this, guys. I mean... <laughs> You know. Well, it, 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 it has been one of the suggestions for settling the um, Israel-Palestine oh, conflict. But, uh, oh, my man. God. Oh, yeah. my Jesus Christ. Okay. As we're learning, might not work. Um, yeah. I, I read that the, the French and the English referred to their, you know, unique situation in different ways. Mm-hmm. That the, um, the English referred to it colloquially as yes. the pandemonium. Yeah, I heard that too. Uh, and the French called it the potpourri, <laughs> which is so French. Interesting. Yeah, I think pandemonium is pretty. This perfumed bark. Mm. <laughs> yeah, because uh, it's such a it's such a pompous word. And I, I think it, it's oh, it's God, funny yeah. because it reflects that even they understood, like that even they were aware. You know, yeah. it's not something that the natives came up with. It's something that the British themselves were like, "Yeah, this is terrible. <laughs> this is just really bad. This yeah. is so inefficient." Yeah. Um, there were some nice stuff. Like the Joint Court did have some laws about, like you know, if you a native was to sell land to a non-native there had to be four witnesses two of whom were native and ideally from the same tribe and did the others have to be British and French maybe and uh, the idea was that like you would make sure that the person selling the land actually had the right to sell the land you know um, okay. and the court could intervene if it deemed that they were underpaid so there was some stuff like that that sounds good on paper because there have been a lot of 
pre-1906 sales of land that are questionable. Uh, there was also supposed to be regulations around endangered servitude and recruitment to labour in, in plantations. It's like you ideally wouldn't be allowed to go back to the same plantation after working there for three years. You'd have to go work somewhere else to stop kind of it becoming a slavery thing. Kind but of that slavery, was widely yeah. ignored because, of course, it was handier to work in the same yeah. place. And the one that really rankled me was that if you were deemed to have absences or breaches of discipline, you could be given extra indentured servitude to make up for your underperformance. Right. But the people who decided on that were the bosses. Of course. Oh, no. And there's reports, again, in that article by Mander, of people gambling with years of service of human beings, oh. you know, playing dice, kind of going, oh. I bet you this guy over here is two years outstanding labour against your... Gold watch or something. Yeah. Ugh. While the while the Melanesian indentured servant would be watching. Oh, God. Which is pretty That's messed pretty up. White people, huh? Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, another really gross thing that I hadn't really thought about, but of course this was happening. The French plantations in particular were known for recruiting single women to work there. And the quote, the, the why quote ever I have so, in, Joe? That article is like for immoral purposes and arranging temporary quote marriages, which is exactly yeah. what it sounds like. Um, mm. Yeah, yeah. So the British, okay. to be fair, clamped down on on some of that. In the 1910s, they raised the minimum age of labourers to 16, where it had been like child labour was cool, and. Um, I think single women had to have the approval of their chief to work, so there was a bit of protection, maybe. Maybe. I mean, it yeah. it was, yeah. So the results um, of the whole thing were pretty absurd. You know, you've got two systems, two education systems, there's still two different language streams of schools in, in uh, Vanuatu to this day. There were two different police forces enforcing different Road laws, different laws, using different prisons, different taxes, even different currencies. They were the same value. But, you know. I heard they had different stamps. Too. Oh, yeah, of course. Like, obviously. Unbelievable. Um, and if you were an overseas visitor, you could choose which law you wanted to be judged under for some infractions. Could you, like, be judged by one and then decide you wanted to get a verdict from the other? No. Okay. No. I read the British law was stricter but had more humane prisons, and French law was a bit more lax, mm. but the prisons were dungeons, so... Gambling. <laughs> I, I I read another thing about the French, uh, that actually some people who went for the French did so because they served wine at lunch. <laughs> uh. That's not great if you end up in a dungeon. Yeah. In, in, in this era of parallel governments where everything was constantly being translated, um, the Creole language, Bishlama, Bishlama, that we've talked about earlier, yeah. uh, spoken by a lot of the population, sort of came to prominence as a, a useful you know a political language I suppose yeah. like it's fairly if you if you see Bislama written down and you kind of look at it once or twice you can take a pretty good stab at understanding yeah, it, it the like, vocabulary it, it, is mostly English and the grammar is yeah is Poly, or Melanesian Polynesian um, but yeah you, you, you can see how it would develop as a shared for sure e- efficient language it doesn't have many synonyms for the same thing. It just describes stuff. Mm. Yeah. And this is especially, um, you know, in a 
in a territory where there are like what dozens and dozens of different uh, indigenous languages as well, right? A hundred, yeah, I plus, think more than hundred plus, read. yeah. So you need some um, kind of lingua franca, yeah. and the British and French are not doing you any favors generally. So. Yeah, I mean, we 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 could we could drop in at some point a, a quote from uh, Lamont Lindstrom about the many many languages in Vanuatu. It's um, a, a, lo- a fairly long chain of islands over eight hundred miles or so. Anthropologists like me are interested in archipelago because of its incredible cultural diversity, and linguists are really interested because the number of languages spoken there. Um, but they keep coming up with more and more. Uh, the the number for many years was 106, but I was at a conference a year and a half ago in Port Vila, the capital town, where the new number is 137, if I recall. And you know this is this is uh, you know in a population in a country with a population of you know less than three hundred thousand. So every couple of thousand people has its own language. So it's I mean if you're interested in language diversity and cultural diversity, Vanuatu is the place to go. Plus the people are very friendly and 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 warm and welcoming. Although of course there's been a huge influx of tourism over since really 1990 and. It, it, Maybe they're a little less. Um, I mean, they have other interests now, like making a living off of tourists that they didn't have when I first went. So obviously, the, this this colonial pandemonium, pandemonium, pandemonium um, was not in favor of the the Nivanuatu, um, and they were pretty keen on getting rid of the European interlopers who were strict and, you know, exclusionary. In the 1920s, you Presbyterian ministry, uh, missionaries, the Presbyterians got settled, got stuck in here pretty well, um, right? Going making representations to the Australian and New Zealand prime ministers, uh, kind of describing the condominium as an abominable thing, because their interest was with the natives. You know, the, the missionaries were going out there to to convert the natives, and they did not like what they saw in terms of how they were being mm. treated. The French started gaining control over British plantations during this era, since they had less strict rules about labourers' uh, quality of life, shall we say, um, so they could run things for cheaper, make more profit. And they also started looking to Asia for labour. Um, so there were about 6,000 Tonkinese people uh, brought in. D- Tonkinese? Oh, servants. From the Gulf of Tonkin, right? Exactly, which is kind of modern-day mm. Vietnam. Hmm. That ah. time, French Indochina. Oh, I I read about like Vietnamese people mm-hmm. there, and I was wondering like how they why, how they had come to be there. Yeah, and like the the British were appealing for indentured servants, presumably the the Indian model we encountered in Suriname and Trinidad and Tobago. Yeah, but that didn't happen, and their crops went unharvested, and French people would buy their plantations. So something a slight aside, but something I didn't realize was that um, have you guys ever seen the musical South Pacific? No. Yes. Wait, no, no, but I know why you're talking about it. I have not seen it. Okay, um, so it was based on it was a very successful Rodgers and Hammerstein Broadway smash hit in the fifties, I suppose, and it was based on a book called Tales of the South Pacific, written by James Michener in the forties. So he will we'll, we'll get to World War Two, but he he spent time there during World War Two, as many people did, and as many many people did, um, and he wrote these stories about the interactions between the soldiers and the. Uh, the Melanesians and the. What I didn't realize is that the the character of Bloody Mary, who's a, a key figure in in the musical, she's a, a foul mouthed beetle nut chewing matriarch who hates the French overseers. Um, 
was based on a real woman, a Tonkinese labourer, who wanted to go back to Vietnam and rise up against uh, her colonial masters. So that's kind of interesting. Cool. She's been immortalised in this. I mean, the character's a bit of a caricature, but it does represent a real a real person. And apparently she, she continued to live in the spirit of Santu and died quite recently at the age of 102. Like, she died in the early 2000s. What? Whoa, um, that's crazy. But, yeah, it's it just an interesting, like, uh, um, a, a, a deep secret uh, from, from my life is that one of my first uh, theatre roles was as the um, mixed-race child of a French planter <laughs> and, uh, and um, uh. I think, a Vietnamese woman in, in a production of South Pacific. Wow. I was very unconvincing with my very pale skin. I mean, yeah, that describes uh, you perfectly, Joe. As a as a pasty but, um, Irishman, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> can I can I inquire? Was there was there a perhaps uh, no longer acceptable attempt oh, at an no. accent oh, slash no. costume? I Joe didn't have much. The, he, the, the kid didn't speak much. I was like eight years old. Okay, but I did wear a sarong, which was uh, it's chilly in Ireland. <laughs> All right, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, like so, I, I obviously oh, remember a lot about this play, and I'd never even thought about where it happened. But it, a lot of its base, it doesn't explicitly say, but it's it's very much inspired by Espiritu Santo and Vanuatu, particularly, and was very mm-hmm. keen on the whole anti-racism stories. So like it was banned in parts of the American South for being too too controversial, <laughs> too, too not racist. Yep, and like a, a lot <laughs> of the drama circles around oh. this French plantation owner with mixed race children and an American nurse who is in love with him but can't get over her own racism about his ex-wife Great. or his, his his dead wife. I love you, but I'm yeah. such a racist. <laughs> <laughs> a classic dilemma. I'm the sympathetic one. Anyway, so I suppose uh. to get back on, on topic, um, by World War Two. The French and the British writers from France and Britain were condemning the condominium as ineffective. Uh, you know, each arguing that their country should just take it. Upon occupation of France in 1940 by the Nazis, you know, things changed. Uh, yeah. The resident commissioner Henri Camille Sato was uh, he declared the New Hebrides for the Free French, and then de Gaulle appointed him governor of New Caledonia, which, as we talked about, was Free French. Mm aligned during World yep. War II. Um, and in 1942, the extreme isolation of the islands came to an end. When, all of a sudden, thousands and thousands of American and Allied troops were just pouring through the ports and building landing strips and bringing in heavy machinery and weaponry and airplanes. Yeah, I, I, I read at one point up to 100,000, which is... Yeah, I mean, we... we, we... Which is double the population of yeah. the... Of Vanuatu as a whole, which is just a, an un, unbelievable influx of people <laughs> into this place. Is uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, it, it's I, I guess yeah. it's hard to, it's hard to know exactly what the figure was, but it looks like at one point there was at least hundred hundred thousand troops stationed there, and at, um, at any given time, definitely thousands yeah, of troops. Yeah, which is yeah, obviously, I think we talked similarly um, or about a similar situation uh, in New Caledonia as well, which you know. These these kinds of occupations have a profound impact mm. on the native population, you know, and and if only just by observing the way that American soldiers live, um, you know, yeah. and learning from them is, uh, 
yeah, is going to have a, a pretty dramatic, uh, going to cause a pretty dramatic shift in the social kind of fabric of the islands. I, I think it's it's interesting that, I mean, to that point about, you know, um, things are getting banned in America because they weren't racist enough. Uh, and, and the Americans just kind of like wander out into the world and stumble into kind of gifting a new perspective to people that they just kind of run into. And it's only on the basis that, like if it had been the American government that they had been interacting with, their, you know, um, impression may not have been yeah. so fantastic. And whether they're, you know, interacting with the French and British governments was not great, but it just because it was random people. Yeah. Uh, in, in and random of... conscripted people too, so not with a sort of a well, yeah, true. not with a sort yeah, of a not. political mission. Exactly, yeah. Mm. That like politics were kind of were out of it. Mm. The politics were the reason they were there, but politics was not the kind of framework on which they were interacting with these individuals. Yeah. Um, which which and, seemed uh, to help. Well, while we talk about the, the the racism that was part of American society, to Melanesian eyes, seeing African American soldiers being Equals yes exactly having, yeah like it would have been the, the disposable income and stuff was a, a shock because yeah, they'd only ever seen white people with those yeah accents. it would have been i assume pretty profound to have seen as you say african-american mm. soldiers and you know soldiers of all kind of different backgrounds racial backgrounds yeah at parity with the european or um you know western soldiers i guess and yeah and up until that point i imagine a lot of the islanders would have only ever associated white people with you know, these are the colonial overlords, you know, and, and we are yeah. subservient to them because of the color of our skin, whereas this would have exactly. obviously shifted yeah. that perspective a little bit. So I interviewed um, Professor Lamont Lindstrom hmm. from University of Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, he, he has a lot of expertise in, in cargo cults, which were these mo- semi-religious, semi-political movements that crop up. You may have heard of them in and around this time and very much influenced by this World War Two influx. And so I think the best thing for us to do here is let him talk about that. He has some very sure. interesting things to say about how this developed and about what it meant for the people in Vanuatu and what it means today. After the war, a number of local social movements erupted throughout the Southwest Pacific or Melanesia. So that's Papua New Guinea, that's the Solomons, that was the New Hebrides, Vanuatu. Fiji, and some other places as well. So colonial administrators and missionaries and, uh, you know, the whole settler community were concerned about, you know, why the villagers are coming up with these movements, which often were quasi-anti-colonial. So Mm -hmm. anthropologists got into the business to try to figure out what was going on. Nobody knew what to call them, but there was a letter that was published in the colonial news magazine Pacific Islands Monthly at the end of 1945 from an Australian planter up in Papua New Guinea who was warning about all kinds of possible post-war disruptions. And in that letter, he introduced the term cargo cult, that there'll be these cargo cults. So what, do you, what did he mean? Well, not everywhere, but in a lot of these movements, and there were several hundreds of them over 20 or 30 years, a prophet would appear and he would say, you know, life is bad if we only um, follow these rituals. And it could be, um, you know, getting together and having a feast, or it could be uh, marching around in a new way, or it could be visiting a graveyard and appealing to ancestors. That somebody, often the spirits, will help us out. And uh, they'll do a number of things. Um, one thing they might do is bring us material stuff or cargo. 
Oh, I see. So the, the cargo is, is what the spirits are bringing. Yeah, and this was probably tied to World War II. There was, I mean, the Americans and the Allies and even the Japanese on their side, you know, imported huge uh, shiploads and plane loads of material that they mm-hmm. needed to fight the war. And um, in, at least in the Southwest Pacific, many local people, local men got recruited to work in Native Labor Corps. And they were the ones who, un, you know, unloaded ships. Though they weren't paid very much, they had access to a variety of uh, novel things that they hadn't seen before or the colonial authorities had kept from them. So when the war ended, they wanted to maintain access to material goods. So one of the typical profit promises was that, yes, if we get together and we we uh, live our life in a good way and we, maybe we invent these new rituals that the American military might come back, and that was the case in southern Vanuatu, or our ancestral spirits will come back from the dead, and they'll bring cargo with them, and uh, life will get better. A secondary message is that, and they'll drive out the colonialists too, so the, the horrible Australians and the British and the French will be you know, sent home. You know, they weren't treated all that well during the colonial period. So yeah. um, at least in the, in the movement that um, came about down on the, the island where I've done a lot of research, Tana, mm-hmm. a lot of wartime American symbols were incorporated into movement rituals. Mm-hmm. American uniforms are still important. They liked raising the American flag. Oh, interesting. The the movement on Tana where I've been doing my research is called the John Frum movement after this spirit figure who appeared in 19, maybe late 30s, certainly 4041, and and uh, told people that they needed to return to their tradition and that he would get rid of the British and the French and uh, throw their money away because he would provide his own new money and uh, a series of other prophecies. He told everybody to go back to drinking kava, which much of the island had not drank for 30 years after conversion to Presbyterian Christianity. The Presbyterians were no originally not big fans of kava. So he said everybody needs to go back to drink kava. Mm-hmm. Well, when you're drinking kava, you can commune with your ancestral spirits. So, you know, the Christian missionaries weren't too happy with that. Uh, the, the Presbyterians were not happy about uh, traditional dance festivals. So John Frum said, okay, we should revive those too. Was John Frum a real person or, or is there any way to know that? Oh, nobody knows really. So that's another mystery. Um, John Trump's a mysterious figure, reportedly sometimes dressed all in white or dressed as a European. The colonial agent thought that some clever trickster Tana guy was duping or fooling all of his fellow islanders, and they arrested a couple of people, and they continued to arrest, mm-hmm. kind of going up to about 100 people between 1941 and 1956 when they gave up. The Dana people say, no, it wasn't really a human figure. It was one of our spirits. And even though they've been, most of them have been, you know, thoroughly Christian of one sort or another since 1900 or before, people still have fairly strong beliefs in the spirit world. Of course. It's not just in the in the Southwest Pacific, but all around the world, really, from, you know, 1492, there have been all sorts of resistance movements. And, you know, probably most anthropologists nowadays would call these globalization movements, where people find their lives affected, changed, or whatever, by, by outsiders moving in one way or another. And 
you, you can resist in a number of ways. You can, you know, arm yourself and try to shoot, start a war. But often your firepower is not as good as the colonials back in the 19th century, early 20th century. So you turn to religion and the spirits to, to help you. So you could find uh, parallel movements to cargo cult all over the place. So certainly Rastafari, the Boxer Rebellion in China, Mau Mau in Kenya, here in the United States, we had the Ghost Dance and we have the Native American Church um, and hundreds of others as, as um, people really turned to religion because, you know, the spirits are powerful and who's going to help you if not them or because, you know, they tried shooting their way out of their problem, but, you know, that just got them into bigger trouble, bigger problems, bigger trouble. So the, do these movements still exist or are they still as relevant as they were post-war? A few of them have kept going. And um, social scientist Max Weber wrote about social movements and um, talked about how movements led by prophets and, you know, big man leaders, uh, if they're going to survive, they have to somehow survive the death of the original prophets. So they have to, they have to become institutionalized, as he put it. And this has happened in a few of them. Like John Framontana, it's still going. It's now essentially a church slash political party. It's, oh. it's run um, candidates for the national parliament and selected a couple of ma- uh, members of parliament over the years. It created uh, calendrical rituals. So every Friday, which is John Frum's day, people are supposed to gather together and dance all night in celebration of John Frum. And every February 15th is John Frum's main holiday or holy day where all of the supporters are supposed to convene at on, on East Tana, at least the East Tana side of things, convene at a coastal village called Sulphur Bay or Ipacol, and they do a day or two of uh, marching and flag raising and celebration. So, yeah, in the aftermath of World War II, uh, after this American influx and this kind of dramatic social change on the islands, uh, a real sort of power struggle developed between the two colonial powers in uh, the New Hebrides and uh, particularly also between the indigenous islanders, mostly, again, over land rights and um, the plantation system that was that was in place there. The case for independence, as with a lot of smaller nations in the wake of World War II, was made stronger by the fact that uh, locals continued to take over more and more responsibility for farming and for the the running of the plantations from uh, the the French and the British. By 1948, most of the crops in the New Hebrides were being produced by uh, the Nivanawatu themselves, although it was not until the development of cooperatives in the 1970s that they were able to assume control of uh, the trade of crops and stuff themselves. um, Positive. Yeah, they were certainly getting more and more involved uh, and you know, we're beginning to see that maybe they didn't need these white people running the plantations for them. Maybe they, they were well capable of, of, of doing that themselves. Uh-oh. So throughout the 50s and 60s, uh, France, as we've seen many times before, opposed uh, the apparent, apparent British desire to decolonize the New Hebrides. Yeah, that's that's been um, a pattern. Yeah, the Gaul was yeah. not super keen on uh, on the decolonizing these, uh, these kinds of places. And I mean, yeah, as we've seen before, um, the French tended as a rule to hold out quite a bit longer than than the british in these things mm-hmm. but obviously here that was not really you know it's a unique situation and that there is you know two powers governing this place so um you know it creates a bit of a a struggle between them 
Um, but yeah, the 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 Gaul, I believe, uh, feared that the sentiment would spread to other colonies in the region, such as New Caledonia. Um, <clears throat> but in 1974, both the UK and France uh, finally were forced to respond to calls for greater independence and autonomy and established a representative assembly, which had a majority elected by the uh, Universal Franchise, uh, replacing the old Colonial Advisory Council. And this gave the Nivanuatu some measure of self-determination, so kind of the first building block towards independence. They, they were now mm. able to vote and uh, elect some, um, some of their own officials and things. Um, one of the early parties at this time, which... Uh, was able to gain a measure of power was the New Hebridean Cultural Association, uh, founded nice in yeah, founded in 1971 by a guy called Walter Linney, uh, mm. who was a Vanuatu Anglican priest. He he, he becomes quite important, doesn't he? I yeah, that's a name you want to remember. Uh, yeah, Walter Linney yeah. is a name you want to remember, and uh, that party was backed mostly by British interest in the islands, uh, and they were big in favor of. Uh, socialist economic policies mm -hmm. uh so spreading the wealth around um and it's bloody communist you know, anglicans <laughs> yeah it's a it's a weird combination but that is yeah that's so you're, uh, you're used to kind of radical catholic south american priests and so like radical sure. i think other... i think from what i read, read uh walter linney was somewhat influenced by um you know south american policies Oscar uh, Romero economic policy at the time so yeah yeah, yeah. Mm. um Whereas uh, the party known as the Union of New Hebrides Communities was supported by French interests, but they, uh, as far as I can tell, had uh, less less of the vote share. Um, and at this time, more than one third of the New Hebrides continued to be owned by foreigners. So their influence was pretty strongly felt. But as I said, that, that was being challenged at this time. Uh, the Representative Assembly created in 19... 1975, but was dissolved a couple of years later after demands for the elimination of government appointees and for immediate independence. So I, I, they, they pushed a little too far too fast, I guess, but uh, the tide of independence couldn't be stemmed. Um, oh, so you're kind of saying we don't want this, this you know, half, half uh, pretend independence, just all sure. or nothing. Yeah, I think so, uh, mm. from, from what I could tell. So uh, the French and the British continued to clash over the future of the islands, uh, but uh, as I said, by the, by the late 1970s, they couldn't really be ignored so much anymore. In 1977, Walter Lini's party was renamed the Vanua Akupati, uh, or VP, which I think was probably an attempt to position it closer to uh the native population rather mm -hmm. than you know have it uh has have a have a british name or an english is, name is that bishlama yeah. party is party presumably i think so, I think yeah, so yeah yeah mm -hmm. so he positioned himself or, or, or very much pitched himself as the leader to take vanuatu into independence uh although there were other voices uh such as a guy called jimmy stevens which is another name you should re you should oh, remember yeah. Uh, were pushing back against the, the, the independent movement. His party, uh, Nagri Amel party, uh, was based in Espiritu Santo, and it espoused the view that the New Hebrides was not ready for independence and the modernization that independence will bring. Uh, however, it's known now that his party was being reputedly... Uh, no reputed. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's known it now that his party was being <laughs> manipulated by anti-independence uh, forces. Hmm. Um, in 1979, uh, foreign landowners were dispossessed, 
and received uh, compensation from their own governments. And this oh, was right. this was another step towards independence uh, because shortly after a date was set for full independence for uh, the New Hebrides, despite France's, again, intransigence. During this announcement, or shortly after this announcement, minor rebellions broke out on Tana and Espiritu Santo. And many are, many historians have argued that these were a direct result of interventions by French landowners, uh, kind of stoking up... Okay anti-independent sentiment. Uh, there were elections in 1979, right ahead of uh, ahead of independence, and Walter Linney's party won the pre-independence elections, uh, and he then became chief minister, putting him in in uh, in pole position to take over as prime minister once independence had been implemented. So now we reach a interesting. <laughs> Uh, time in the history of Vanuatu, uh, which later became known as the Coconut War. That sounds dismissive. This is yeah. It's I mean it. It's not a you know it's not a, a kind of conflict with a, a lot of bloodshed, but it's it's certainly a very interesting clash given mm. the the background like was here. It, was it over coconuts or was it just sort of happening happening far away? I think it happened through the lens of Australian and British media. Yes. So yeah. there's a lot of kind of trivialization mm-hmm. of the That's whole I mean. thing mm. in this kind of gross way. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, it, it, it would go on. It wasn't nicknamed the Coconut War from the beginning because, as you mentioned, Joe, it was not over coconuts. Okay. Uh, oh, but, uh, yeah, it, it was. Oh, that God. was a name that was tacked on by the media later on. Um, so Jimmy Stevens, uh, a very intriguing character in Vanuatu's history, uh, was born in the 1920s. He was part European, part Melanesian, and part Polynesian. And he claimed that his father was Scottish and that his mother was Tongan. Uh, and one obituary, which I read of, uh, about the guy, I called him perhaps the most astute and certainly the most fervent of pre-independence religio activists in the South Pacific. Uh, so in 1980, Jimmy Stevens began uh, fomenting an uprising against colonial officials. This, again, was was right before independence was due to be implemented. Um and I guess he felt that, uh, or had been told, maybe that uh, the transition to independence would create a window of opportunity, uh, you know, like uh, jump into that that potential power vacuum. His group, which was named the New Hebrides Autonomy Movement, was deemed a rebellion by bow and arrow wielding cargo cult devotees. There we go again. Uh, yeah. And uh, he advocated a return to ancestral Vanuatu's bushland culture. So he became a self-styled Moses and declared himself head of the independent state of Vemarana wow. and uh, of his own royal church of Nigriamel on the eve of the independence. His supporters kidnapped the government representative uh, and yeah, and occupied the, uh, the main town on Espiritu Santo, which was Fanafo. Pretty quickly after that point, British and Australian citizens were evacuated from the island, uh, while a peacekeeping force of British troops was dispatched to Espirito Santo to try to figure out what the hell was going on. Uh, this move was criticized by the French, as you can imagine, because they didn't, you know, or weren't willing to send their own peacekeeping force. And yep. things must always eternally be in balance. Mm-hmm. Always in twos. Yes. Mommy can't go without daddy. Mm-hmm. In August, Walter Linney was installed as Prime Minister of the New Republic, although, um, you know, this this rebellion was ongoing at the time. Right. And he brought in uh, young, raw troops from Papua New Guinea, which replaced the British peacekeeping force uh, and therefore eased tensions with the French. Hmm. Uh, But the citizens on Espiritu Santo, recognizing the Papuans as fellow Melanesians, uh, were pretty happy to see them. 
and yeah. didn't didn't see them as a threatening force whatsoever. Uh, and this was actually when the nickname began to be picked up by the foreign media, uh, the Coconut War, because it was uh, Papua New. You know, as they looked at it, okay, it was Papua yeah. New Guineans against Vanuatuans um, invading Vanuatu. Yeah, and geez. there we have the Coconut War because mm. they're all savages who eat coconuts, apparently. Oh, they, do, they do grow a lot of coconuts there. Coconuts but... are good. Yeah, it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be a pejorative. So later in that month, uh, the war came to a pretty abrupt end. There were a few kind of skirmishes within that month or so where the the conflict was, um, you know, was was ongoing. But the war quickly came to an end after Jimmy Stevens's son, uh, one of many sons, I believe, uh, was killed by the Papuans after a car that he was in uh, ran through a checkpoint oh, right. and was fired upon. Yeah. And I think at that point, Jimmy Stevens just lost his stomach for this thing. Uh, yeah. As far as I can tell, and just said, "Okay, uh, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm going to call this off because it doesn't doesn't look like I have any hope of win- winning this thing." Um, so he laid down his arms, such as they were, calling for an end to hostilities and allowing himself to be arrested. However, during his trial, uh, it was revealed that his group had received significant financial backing from the American Libertarian Group, the Phoenix Foundation. Yeah, yeah, that's <clears throat> which had right which had hoped to establish a tax haven in Vanuatu. And I guess they they had sort of seen this, again, window of opportunity where there were, um, you know, French interests in the region that didn't want independence. And uh, this guy, Jimmy Stevens, who was willing to kind of cause a bit of a, 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 a ruckus um, and had a following because he was a, he was a sort of a religious leader as well. Yeah, they sort of latched onto him, as far as I can tell, and uh, decided, you know what, maybe this is an opportunity for us to create a sort of libertarian tax haven. As I said, they'd, they'd also previously been involved in a similar but also failed attempt to create a tax haven in the Bahamas a couple of years previously, hmm. I believe. So, um, can, can I also mention the Republic of Minerva? Sure. In this context, uh, yeah. in 1971, they, they erected a metal tower uh, on a reef in between Tonga and Fiji and put a flag on it. Uh, and that that was also one of their plans to make a libertarian paradise in a bit of shallow water between Tonga and Fiji. They weren't very good at, to be honest. This is their third round uh, after the the uh, the Bahamas. Vanuatu was their their third attempt at this after after yeah. this kind of Tongan uh, reef bridge and mm. uh, the the island in the Bahamas. But uh, yeah, yeah, they were as far as I understand. I did a little bit of reading about them. They were they were just like two or three sort of businessmen who. You know, wanted to create, as a, as I say, some kind of a libertarian utopian tax haven um, what somewhere. A noble cause. Yeah, yeah. And just decided to funnel their money into um, sort of South Pacific dissidents. I guess I don't know. It's uh, yeah. It's it was it's an interesting strategy, um, and they are thankfully now a, a sort of a, a minor jot and the footnote of history. Um, so we get we get independence then. Fairly yeah. So independence did finally go ahead. After the Coconut War had been concluded, uh, independence really began in earnest. Uh, July 30th, 1980, which was in the midst of the Coconut War, um, was uh, Independence Day. As I said, Walter Linney was installed as the first prime minister. And uh, under his government, interesting um, tangent, but uh, relevant to one of our previous episodes, uh, Vanuatu actually supported, uh, provided support to the Kanak independence movement in New Caledonia. That makes sense. Yeah, and was also the only country in the region to support the independence of East Timor. Uh, which was then Arr. under Indonesian occupation. So I guess Timor once Lest. Walter Linney got into power, 
uh, or his party did, then he decided, you know what, we want to give uh, aid to other island groups that are, are trying to become independent, and we want to we want to try to try to support this that. This is why you don't put the vicar in charge of the country. It's just mm. goes around causing trouble. I was just going to say that there's a book called The Coconut War, which uh, I, I read a, a decent bit of, and it's a, a British journalist who kind of travels out to Vanuatu around this time, kind of mm. sent by British tabloid rags to find, you know, um, interesting stories, try to meet with Jimmy Stevens, which he does a few times. Uh, and he also kind of ha- has a bit of an awareness of this Phoenix Foundation uh, and and so on. And he, there was a few kind of mentions about, I guess, the 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 different approaches between the British and the French and um, the the French weren't as aggressive as I guess they were in New Caledonia, but there was definitely, you know, very obvious collaboration between them and, and uh, the, the, the rebels in that when, when the French left, they uh, left all of the vehicles filled with gas and with the keys in the ignition and oh, left great. all the, the, the guns and ammo out. That's handy. Um, and, and before the Brits left, they they at least kind of tried to fight back, albeit they they fired tear gas into a high wind and then blinded themselves. Uh, so, one 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 was a little incompetent; the other was was downright malevolent. Yeah. Um. And I think you know, to to the point about like kind of Linney's perception of 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 the French, uh, like the the British were almost kind of embarrassed by the involvement that they had to have bringing in commandos and all this kind of stuff they just kind of wanted to be done with whatever this mess yeah was they wanted to, to wash their hands of it i think yeah but the french just kept stalling and stalling and stalling and kind of preventing the british from doing anything um and i think that taught linny a pretty you know serious lesson in how um how much resistance there was from the french and the french still had that base in, in new caledonia so it probably was a, a an ongoing worry for him how strong they were for sure. So before we wrap up that section and move on to uh, post-independence, I just want to talk a little bit about the flag. Flag talk. Oh, yes. Yeah, flag talk. Um, so in 1977, uh, a flag with similar colors to the eventual Vanuatu flag um, and similar symbolism uh, was designed by a local artist and adopted by the um, the VP party, uh, which is... I always find a little bit disappointing that kind of the 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 national flag originates from a political party, mm. um, but yeah, it's it's I, I've looked at the political party's flag, the VP flag, and it's 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 quite significantly different. It has like I say, similar color scheme, but um, yeah, the Vanuatu flag is pretty cool. Um, upon independence, the new government sought design submissions along similar lines, and the new flag was eventually adopted on July thirtieth, nineteen eighty. Again, Independence like, Day. Imagine a South African flag with different colors. It's very similar to the South African in flag, but with a a, a a sort of a, a tusk and a some fronds uh, in the sort of triangle on on the left side. There aren't that many flags shaped like that, so I, I like that about it. That it's the sort of the sideways I like it, wide. Yeah. I mean, as ever, it will be included in the show notes. If you want to mm-hmm. take a look right now in your podcast app, you should be able to open the notes and just have a look. But. Um, yeah, the green represents the richness of the islands. The of red course. symbolizes the blood of wild boars and men. The it black of does. the Nivanuatu people. Uh, and Walter Linney apparently personally requested the inclusion of the yellow and black fimbriations, which is kind of the 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 but, but why the line around the outside, um, <laughs> in order to make the black stand out. And the yellow Y shape does. represents the light of the gospel going through the pattern of the islands into the Pacific Ocean. Oh, jeez. Mm. Um, just to mention well. uh, on, on the point about the red 
uh, I don't think we've mentioned it, but it's something I've encountered a few times is the the thing with Vanuatu chiefs and, and pigs. Yeah. Um, that it, so when I first read it, it was in the context of Walter Linney and they were kind of making the point that like Walter Linney was, he was, he was a chief. He was a leader because he was a great guy. He had, you know, temperament. He was smart, agile, all these kinds of things. Not as was the case in some other cases that he had killed a lot of pigs. And I didn't understand that comment. I thought it was just like somebody not being very nice. Um, then I read well, elsewhere. It's, it's an important part of the It's culture. an initiation it ceremony to kill a to kill yep. a pig. And I think to beat it to death, is that right? I think you you've got to like it's it's not a it's not a I did chill see some ceremony somewhere it's to like, like a, a pig beating stick being given as a gift to someone. I think you gotta beat the pig to death. I, I think, think um oh I think pr- the Prince Philip to. movement gave a pig beating stick to Prince Philip. So that's what that club's for. I hadn't realised the club was for beating a pig with. Okay. Mm-hmm. And and the the, the curved Boar's tusk in the flag is again a symbol of that. that that's a thing of value oh. in, in Melanesian culture. I, I actually read this uh, Kiros. Uh, that was one of the things his men ran into. They were stealing pigs, and they didn't realize how important pigs were in their culture. Oh, they're pretty because they had yeah. the, they were super important, mm-hmm. and it wasn't just that they were stealing food. They were stealing, you know, it'd like be stealing cattle in Indeed. ancient Celtic Ireland. Yeah, but uh, overall, how many flags out of ten would you give it, Luke? I think I would I would say it's a little bit too complex of a flag. I think Suriname is still one of my favorites. Um, okay. So I'm going to give it a 6 out of 10. 6 flags out of 10. <laughs> I, I, I think it's very strong, personally. I think the colors really jump. And I love having a... I think the, the leaves inside the tusk is maybe a bit too much. Hmm. But I like having indigenous symbol that isn't too fussy. Like, it's not a picture. It's not a... Sure. It's it's just it is a symbol, much like you would have a seashell or a cross or a castle. Yeah. I, so I think it's it's it looks modern and crisp, but also Melanesian. Crisp. So I'm a fan. I give it an eight. Quintessentially Melanesian. We all agree. Okay. I so after uh, independence, um, you know, politically, it's a small country. It's like if it was a larger country, the political stuff I'm about to describe would seem like insane kind of societal ructions. But I don't think anybody pays too much attention to politics in Vanuatu for large large periods post-independence. I mean, Walter Linney had done a pretty remarkable thing in guiding the country from the condominium, being run by two of the world's great powers, to being independent with very little bloodshed in the middle yep. despite mm. two rebellions uh, backing from american libertarians uh stubborn there's dynamite there's 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 cults around there's like a lot of crazy stuff happening and somehow linny manages to kind of guide them out of that with with the really astute move of bringing in the, those papua new guinea troops who who seem to be really effective which you know is is, is in itself you wouldn't necessarily expect but and it, anyway it he he nails it basically he does a he does a bang up job um and there's pretty much very little to say about the kind of 10 11 years that he's there it's 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 a pretty quiet calm time a time when kind of uh, you know bridges are mended and so and on he's still democratically elected he doesn't do a whole you know president for life oh thing. yeah he doesn't go crazy okay, that's, yeah. that's nice that's that's important he 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 he's just he's just a normal guy being being prime minister and it's all good um so after linney 
things start to kind of speed up and there's a lot of uh, changing of uh, of prime ministers. I think I, I calculated one every 1.3 years. Oh, it's almost Australian level of... Uh... Well, yeah, exactly. They're almost as unstable as Australia. But there's a lot of kind of switching back between kind of three or four different people and then the names kind of gradually change from decade to decade. Um, there's 23 different terms shared among nine men we'll see over huh. the next while. Um and also just something we hadn't mentioned, Bislama, the name comes, probably comes from a sea slug called Beshlamer, the, the language uh, Bislama is, mm. is apparently referring yeah. to this kind of tasty I, I sea slug. I saw that somewhere and I don't, I don't really understand why you would call your language after a sea slug, but... I think it's because what it's what the foreigners called it. Oh. Because it was this this food thing that they found locally and they, they quite liked and, I don't know, somehow it got transferred to be the name for, right. the, for the, the Lingua Franca. So... Two exceptions to the kind of quiet I've described in the 1980s. President Ati George Sukumanu resigned in 1984. Uh, he was prosecuted for a tax violation and then was promptly re-elected president in 1984. So, yeah, uh, president, uh, president prosecuted for taxes and is Such a totally fine. No one cares. Impeachment. <laughs> and uh, in 1989... Uh, the same president, President George Adi Sukumanu, was sentenced to six years in prison for incitement to mutiny. Oh, he served uh-huh. a mere three months and then was immediately released. Uh, so, and, and re-elected? Uh, like, uh, I think that was it for him. But <laughs> I think a lot of these things are, they're, they're as much personal between yeah. the politicians as they are like actually, you know, anybody caring about them. One thing that is kind of against that is the what becomes known as the Vanuatu Mobile Force, which are basically like the army. Uh, it only kind of dawned to me today why they're called the Mobile Force, and it's because they have to be mobile to get around to all the islands. Hmm. So they're not. there's not a base in Vanuatu per se, although you know, I'm sure they're based somewhere. But it, the point is, is that they're the kind of mobile troops that can kind of go from island to island. Like Marines um, or something. Yeah, and in that way, like this, you know, in Egypt, Iran, places like that, you see armies kind of gaining a lot of influence. Because for one respect, they're they're the ones with the guns, um, but they also have a political link, and it's a very small country as well. So the, the the VMF, as they're known, are actually pretty influential, and I think a lot of people are generally concerned about their governance or lack thereof, uh, and how how bad things can get, and. Uh, Example thereof was in 1996, on the uh, 12th of October, the VMF abducted the president, mm, uh, Jean-Marie bad. Laye, um, which I'm sure I'm mispronouncing, uh, from his home, and they forced him to fly to a, a nearby island uh, where he was kept for several hours. The, the whole thing was about a dispute around uh, payment allowances for the VMF. Essentially, they felt that they, their payments were in arrears, and I think they were right, actually, by all accounts. Um but eventually the cabinet resolved to pay and everything was su- supposedly supposedly fine. The, the result of this was that the government policemen, uh, commanded by a man called Peter Bong, uh, arrested 150 members of the VMF. So they essentially arrested most of the army, oh. um, including a guy called Sato Kilman, who, which is a great name for the head of the army, um, but he was the kind of member of parliament and he was a former commander of the VMF. So he was seen as kind of a de facto leader, I think. But I mean, that 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 essentially drew quite a bit of it to a close. And then there was a 
an, another event involving the VMF the following year, the following November, in fact, um, there was a decision to dissolve the National Assembly and hold parliamentary elections. This did actually cause some some rare interest in politics. Police clashed with demonstrators in Port Vila in January, and the government declared a two-week state of emergency. The VMF appealed for assistance from the government of Fiji, um, and police and members of the VMF conducted what was called Operation Restore Public Hope, which is the kind of on-the-nose on mission name. Okay. You'd, well, you'd expect it more from the Americans than from, from necessarily the Vanuatu uh, mobile force, but there you go. Um, and they ended up uh, arresting and detaining about 500 individuals uh, as a result of, kind of the, the disturbances. But the state of emergency that, that had been placed was lifted uh, and things broadly calmed down after that. Uh, Walter Linney died in 1999 um, on February 21st. Um, but his surname lives on, as we'll see quite soon. So the next thing I want to talk about is, is Barack Sope. He, he, he figures in quite a few sort of small scandals. Uh, he was elected prime minister in 1999. He then, he then lost a vote of no confidence in the National Assembly in 2001, being replaced by a guy called Edward Natepe. Uh, Barack Sope in 2001 then was charged with forging government guarantees valued at $23 million oh at the consent of the finance minister. Okay. Um, Great. So, yeah, <laughs> that, that's that's the thing that happened there. Uh, and then in 2002, he was sentenced to three years in prison uh, as a result of that. Uh, and then was immediately pardoned by the president. So, great. Um, then he became, this Barack Sope guy became one of the main figures in this issue with Australian police advisors who were seen or interpreted to be spies, essentially. As with the kind of Papua New Guinea force, uh, as, as far as I know, there, there had been some Australian involvement in coordinating that. Um, and Australia also kind of lended their expertise in terms of kind of police administration to to Vanuatu um but this minister Brack Sope decided this was a terrible thing and he demanded they leave Vanuatu within two weeks he was the foreign minister at this stage um the Australian government threatened to reduce its 31 million dollar foreign assistance program um and despite this the police advisors were ordered out of the country on September 15th 2004 um the next day, the prime minister said they were permitted to return. Uh, it was just, it seems like it was total confusion where you've got Sope kind of using his his soapbox of foreign ministership and then a, quite a lot of the rest of the country being a bit uncomfortable about this and the kind of ructions it's creating with their relationship with uh, Australia. So in return for financial assistance of more than 20 million, uh, Serge Vahor, who's the prime minister, established diplomatic relations with Taiwan during his visit there. Great. and. Essentially, this was to kind of offset the cuts in financial assistance from Australia. So Australia threatened to cut off the money. They're like, oh, sure, we need to find money. And Taiwan's like, hey, have you recognized Taiwan? Huh? It's the cool thing we're all interested in. It's a very cool thing that they mm -hmm. have paid many countries to do. Yeah. Uh, including Nauru, I believe. Uh, I think Nauru switched back and forth more than once for, for, for yep. the money. Because mm -hmm. Nauru really needs that money. Yeah, they do. Um, so China immediately suspended its foreign assistance to Vanuatu uh, as a result of this. And uh, Prime Minister Serge Vohor dismissed Foreign Minister Brak Sope for leading this effort uh, to oppose diplomatic relations with China. So Sope is kind of kicked out in his ear again. Uh, 
Australian diplomats are sent to Port Vila. Uh, they're issued an ultimatum. Sorry, they issue an ultimatum to Vanuatu to change their policies, uh, including re-establishing diplomatic relations with China or face a suspension of all that lovely money. Um, and Serge Vahor is now kind of in an awkward position and says, we will not be blackmailed by China. Uh, and then pretty much all his government resigns because they're like what, like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, just stop. Yes, we will. Oh, yes, we will. We, we, we never meant to recognize Taiwan. You just you just kind of made us. Like, just stop it. This is all because Barack Sope's mental. Um, anyway, so Serge Lahore is basically seen to be a bit of a bit of a tum-tum tit as a result of all this. And they get rid of him and bring in Mr. Ham Linney. Uh, who is the brother of uh, of, uh, of Walter Linney? Few few last points. Uh, uh, they were given a big grant of sixty five million for sustainable growth by the American by the U.S. Millennium Challenge Fund. Uh, I, sustainable economic growth is is the watchword there. And then in two thousand and nine, uh, Prime Minister Edward Natepe is stripped of his position after missing three consecutive parliamentary sittings without submitting a written explanation. And then there's just kind of a few articles from more modern day. One is just about how the VMF, the Vanuatu Mobile Force, is still a big concern. There is uh, an account of a kind of a you know, paramilitary style beating of a guy. Uh, and quite a lot of people in the island are, you know, okay with it, basically. And there's a lot of concern of, you know, given what the VMF did in the past, including, you know, kidnapping officials, that this is something that could easily happen again. Um, and they haven't really addressed it, so they're still hanging out, being really scary. Yeah, if we're talking, if we're talking about, I mean, we're kind of transitioning now into modern day. But we're pretty much modern day now. Um, yeah. I think I mentioned in the intro, but um, from a UN report in 2015, I read uh, for four years running at that point, and I, I believe it's still sort of in a similar position today. Vanuatu has been ranked the world's most disaster-prone country, and yeah, in uh, 2014. I got a ranking of 36.5 percentage points, which places the country well ahead of uh, the Philippines at 28.3, as well as uh, its South Pacific neighbor Tonga at 28.2, or even Guatemala at 21%. And Germany, by comparison, ranks 147th at three percentage points. What kind of natural disasters are we talking about? We're talking about, uh, because it's part of the Ring of Fire. Uh, oh yeah there's a huge volcano there isn't there there are volcanoes volcanoes. there are tsunamis there are um typhoons that that wander through regularly um Mm. yeah it's 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 really not volcanoes are actually a tourist attraction they are but they're also some of them are also active i believe so uh oh yeah that's why yeah yeah. so um yeah we probably don't hear a lot about it because it's a it's a very small under underdeveloped nation uh partially Mm. for that reason but uh yeah it's it bears the brunt of a lot of natural disasters um, on a very regular basis. So, okay, yeah, I have a little bit here on industry. So, according to a report by the Commonwealth, the Vanuatu economy is based on agriculture, fishing, tourism, and uh, more recently, offshore financial services. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the libertarians get their wish. Mm, much of the agriculture is subsistence farming, and most ag- mm-hmm. exports are agricultural. So, for example, uh, copra, which we mentioned. Coconut oil, kava, beef, timber, cocoa, and coffee. Uh, and Vanuatu is also vulnerable, therefore, to fluctuations in world commodity prices. Sure. The country has inherent economic difficulties. It is remote and isolated and therefore faces heavy transport and export costs. And is also prone to regular cyclone and natural disaster damage. 
And uh, because of its vulnerability and uh, isolatedness, Vanuatu is currently working towards supplementing large-scale agriculture with stronger extractive manufacturing and service sectors, uh, including tourism, to shore up its long-term economic growth. You mentioned financial services there, mm. and I actually... Um, uh, have have pivoted okay. professionally in into the area of financial crime recently and was okay. actually giving a presentation which Vanuatu figured in today. Wow. Um and it's because Vanuatu makes this like really 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 bad list of countries that are kind of, you know, essentially European countries or uh, you know firms essentially can't deal with because the money laundering concerns are so grave. Um, Vanuatu is on that short list of 16 countries as are you know DPRK and Iran and so on um, one other 80 day all star is on there uh, anybody want to take a swing at what country is that Nauru it might surprise you actually I was going to guess Nauru too um, it's Trinidad and Tobago ooh oh. okay yeah I was surprised but yeah apparently they're, they're, they're also on the, the EU's naughty list J- just to contrast with the GDP report, um, Vanuatu is often declared the happiest place on earth by the Happy mm. Planet Index. I did so hear many that. Many years yeah. in a row, it went because apparently, you know, quality of life is quite good if you're happy, not having lots of cash. Mm, for sure. You know, if 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 your subsistence farming is going well, uh, you just get to live in a tropical, nice place and have enough to eat and. Kill as many pigs as you like. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I guess it depends on your expectations too. Like a lot of these people, mm-hmm. you know, this is the the best quality of life that they've had in generations. So they're going to I mean, be the commute's not bad. Sure, yeah. <laughs> so they're going to be pretty pretty happy, I guess. Uh, some demographics, like almost all of the population, are Melanesian. Sure, some Polynesian and some European descended people, but not really that many. And about 70% of the population is Protestant, with Presbyterians, as we say, being a big contributor because they got in early. Yeah, the, the, Catholics. this is a win for the missionaries, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, there's also Catholics, traditional beliefs, and uh, what the kind of cargo cult stuff we discussed earlier, all kind of lumped in under what's called custom, which is you know, traditional ways of doing things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, evangelical Protestantism is getting getting its uh, hooks, its hooks in. in as well. Yeah. Um, I just want to say a few things. So we've talked a bit about Bishlama as a, as a Creole. Sure. So it's apparently now the first language of most urban Nivanuatu people. Mm. Hmm. Uh, and as we said, the, 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 the vocabulary is, is English-derived, but the, the grammar and the kind of sounds are from the Melanesian yeah it's basically the only language understood by all people as a first or second language right where English is learned by lots of people French is learned by lots of people there's lots of you know hundreds of other languages and I just you know I like languages so I find that the, 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 the use of prepositions fascinating so they've got this preposition belong which is right. obviously from belonging, yeah, belongs cool. to, but it, it kind of does the genitive case. You know, it's like if it, instead of saying, uh, you know, for instance, to introduce myself, I say name belong me Joe. Ah, the yeah. name that my name is Joe is like the the name belonging to me is Joe. Why do you need more versions of me to get that across? Sure, yeah. 
you know, where we, we in, in standard English, you change me into my and make it possessive. So, you know, and that that's quite versatile. So it means to, from, of, anything, you know. And the, 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 the one I heard an example of in a, in a nice TEDx talk in Basel was, you know, sometimes you just describe a thing rather than come up with new vocabulary. So uh, basket long titty means bra. Bra. Okay, you know? here we go. And my favourite one, I, let me just... Is it the one for saw? No, go for it. Oh, uh, pulling me come, pushing me go. That works. Yeah. And there's no ambiguity about what that could mean. Is there not? And the one I... The, the, the 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 favorite one I came across in that TEDx talk, which I I don't know if this can be true, but uh, she uses the example of uh, mix master belong Jesus Christ. Mix master. Okay. Wait. Uh. Wait. 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 Mix master. What do you think? So a mix master, I think, is in terms of like you know food preparation, like a blender or a Jesus Christ's blender. Yep. Okay. Where, where does Jesus Christ live? What? The church? <laughs> what? Israel? Is the... Like. What? <laughs> what are you talking about? Apparently it's a helicopter. Oh, oh okay. Mix master belonged to Jesus Christ. Um, so I, I, I think, and, and also, bad friend is an enemy, you know? Okay. I think, I think it works. So now. But you know, you savvy TikTok bishlama and me savvy TikTok bishlama. Fair enough. Okay. <laughs> cool. Anyway, so I, I think it sounds like a cool language that that I I can see how people would get the hang of it quite quickly. Sure, I can see it. Yeah. If you moved there and lived among it, you'd sort yeah. of adapt. Should I mention sports very mm-hmm. briefly? I, I really want um, to talk about um, land diving. Are you going to talk about land diving? <laughs> I'm not actually. No, oh, no. I was man. just going to mention this. Uh, well, let, let, for, let's hear for, about the boring sports. Yeah, first. you do boring sports. The formal first. sports, take them off. Uh, no, they they do. Uh, they have sent I think 37 people to the Olympics, to the Summer Olympics, but they have no no medals as of yet. And they're actually quite into football. Uh, they have one or two players playing in like the Australian and and Kiwi leagues, and they seem to have uh, a, like a pretty like dynamic league themselves across the islands. Um, and I think their national team plays in the kind of Oceania football championship. Um, generally, they've, they've come fourth a couple of times. Uh, I can't imagine the competition's too too stiff. Uh, but they, you know, they, they've they've done all right. Like they, they, I think their record win was something like eighteen nil versus Kiribati. That's from memory. But uh, yeah, they like they they win stuff. They 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 do fine. Uh, not to worry about them. All right, but that's about it. Apart from your thing. Okay, yeah. Um, Land Divers. I actually just dropped into our um, chat a video, which you guys might want to take a look at if you haven't seen it. But um, yeah, so Land Diving is basically the forerunner to um, bungee jumping. And it's it's it uh, originates in Pentecost Island. It's an ancient ritual in which young men jump from tall wooden platforms with vines tied to their ankles as a test of courage and passage into manhood. I actually heard, I think, vaguely oh about this before. Um, but I didn't know it was from Vanuatu. Unlike in modern bungee jumping, land divers intentionally um, brush the ground, but the vines absor- absorb sufficient force to make the impact non-lethal. So we will oh, no. we'll put up a, a video of this. Um, yeah, I'm I'm I'm, wa- I'm watching this now. Sure. So yeah, ah. yeah. 
Ah, uh, no, don't do that. <laughs> so yeah, you'll see if you we'll, we'll put up this video on um, our Facebook page and Instagram and stuff. But um, yeah, and we can include a link to it in the show notes too. But uh, if you take a look at the video, it's it's obvious that this this is not something that humans really should be doing uh there is very little give in these vines as far as i can tell like it's you know I, how these these people do not get their um knees and hips dislocated is beyond me but um yeah, you definitely want to measure the vines out properly yeah so and they're not wearing a lot either yeah so it's it's it apparently emerged as a, a practice that takes place after the yam harvest to ensure a plentiful crop for the following year uh, and according just, to just irrigate, yeah, just just water the land. <laughs> and according to Guinness World Records, the G force experienced by those at their lowest point in the dive is the greatest experienced in the non-industrialized world by human beings. So, oh my god! Yeah, and it was these towers are terrifying. Yeah, so they're what? What oh, would you guys geez. say? About twenty feet tall, maybe the towers? Oh, more. Yeah, probably no, more, more at times. Feet, yeah, uh, they. I think they vary, but they're probably at least twenty feet tall. And um, yeah. Uh, they're 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 terrifying. Um, cool. Well, I won't be doing that. Um, yeah, geez. and I just have one one cool story, which is unbelievably almost the last recorded death from land diving was in 1974, when oh, Queen Elizabeth II visited Pentecost Island and wanted to witness a dive. Uh, oh, and God. legend has it that a diver died because he chose to carry a good luck charm to protect himself, and it's now oh. considered bad luck to carry any kind of a, a charm. Uh, I also I also read that um, it may have been because it was at the wrong time of year because it was out of season, so the vines were like um, drier or stiffer than they usually would be, right. and they broke. Um, but yeah, apparently they do this every year, and um, and very very few people die. <laughs> uh, which, if you watch the videos, is almost unbelievable to me. Um, yeah. And they're they're actually in. There is some dispute, uh, an ongoing dispute over. Um, I think AJ Hackett is a company that claims to have invented. They're a New Zealand company, I believe, and they claim to have invented uh, bungee jumping. But obviously, yeah. the Vanuatuans will uh, dispute that and are are still disputing mm. that. Um, but yeah, that's uh, that's land diving. I think I, I, you, you say this takes place on Pentecost Island, Luke. And there's just one other fascinating thing I'd like to finish off. With. Sure. Um, a movement called the Tangbunya Bank, okay, which is a bank set up in Pentecost Island, run by chiefs there. It's just a fascinating that they deal in units of customary wealth. So we talked about the pigs' tusks earlier. Hmm. Um. And basically, they've set up a rival currency to the official one, the Vatu, which is a kind of a Western currency, pegged. The, I'm not sure if it's still pegged to the Australian dollar, but like you know, it, it was for a long time. And they've defined this this thing called a divatu, which is the equivalent of value of one fully curved boar's tusk. Oh wow! Okay. This is like a table of lodge. conversion between like boar's yeah. tusks and and other money. And you can lodge your boar's tusks and your shells and your cool. long woven coloured mats in the bank, and then use the relative value to, you know, either get do get actual currency or get other or boar's tusks or. Well, you know, they would have used these things traditionally to like pay dowries and stuff. Sure, sure. Um, but also, I, I read, in, I think it was a BBC article about it, um, about how people were now using it to pay school fees because school, schools aren't free in Vanuatu and allowing them right. to use this kind of indigenous currency means people who live off the land and don't work in the cash-based awesome. I, capitalist yeah. economy can actually have 
you know, lodge their value and have it recognized. Um, which is just yeah. I've never. I, I don't think I've ever heard of a bank that deals in anything other than money. Which is no. That's and that's they're kind very of saying, you know, that our things of value are of value. Yeah. Um, as much as your pretend money. Yeah. Is because money only has value because we agree that it has value. Like the mm-hmm. paper and coins don't actually, you know, don't actually have the so value they, that 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 we ascribe to them. So why not? I guess they've had a few run-ins with the with the with the government with the Reserve Bank of Vanuatu about whether they can call this currency um but there's a great quote from chief virileo as he leaves and locks up the bank at night with a stern padlock on on a hut and he kind of goes you know so far there have been no robberies all the branches he explains with a chuckle are guarded by spirits and snakes fair enough that seems like a great place to leave it yeah i think so before we go we want to thank a bunch of new patreon backers who have joined our ranks recently Thank you so much to Theo Mooney, Emma Browning, Molly Dayardine, Bernard Quinn, Dermot Hurley, Justin Weber, Anthony Terry, Emily Eggman, Mark Christopher Kratt, and Laurie P., all of whom have decided to financially support what we do here, and we thank them very much for it. Very nice. As I mentioned earlier in the show, this month's Patreon takings will be donated to Medicine Sans Frontiers or Doctors Without Borders to help in the fight against COVID-19. If you want to become part of our Patreon team of backers, please visit patreon.com forward slash 80 days podcast or follow the link in the show notes to find out more. Speaking of show notes, you can also find links to everything that we talked about in this episode, including that land diving video in the show notes for this episode, which you should be which should be available via your podcast player of choice. If you'd like to help out the show, you can leave us a review or a rating in said podcast player or store. And you can find more episodes at 80dayspodcast.com or find us on social media by searching 80 Days Podcast. You can also email us directly at 80dayspodcast at gmail.com. Joe, where can people find more from you on the internet? If they go to timetoburn.com or burn is spelled B-Y-R-N-E, they'll uh, find more information about me and where I am on Twitter and so on. And Mark? Uh, you can find me on uh, Twitter at uh, markboyle 86 you can find me on Twitter at the Luke J. Kelly or on my website, LukeJKelly.com. Thank you so much for listening. Take care, stay safe, and we'll talk to you again soon. Ta-ta. Thank you. Bye.